Thank you. Good morning. Let's see. I don't know if you noticed, but I haven't been here the last couple of Sundays. So, had a wonderful vacation. Spent about six days uh, backpacking and climbing. Uh, climbed Mineral Peak by myself and uh, kind of got into a, a little bit of a, a difficult strait. It was a situation where I couldn't go down. wasn't sure if I could make it all the way up at that point. Um, but it just reminded me that sometimes in life, to get down, you have to go up. And there's a spiritual element to that for sure. Uh, Monday is the Republican National Convention, which is a reminder, if you were not aware, that uh, we're really getting into the thick of the presidential election campaign. And I know that for many of you, and we in our congregation represent a wide spectrum of positions uh, between the Democratic and the Republican or maybe some other uh, viewpoint because uh, we care a great deal about our country and for us each election and particularly perhaps for some of us this election maybe more than most is uh, critical in our minds and our hearts. Uh, we want to make a difference. I've noticed, for example, on Facebook, uh, a lot of heated discussion, uh, not necessarily between anybody in here, but between uh, one friend and another over issues of political importance. But it just got me to thinking uh, what difference do I really make? We cast our vote, and that's very, very important, and I want to urge you to vote as a citizen of the United States. That is your privilege, and it is not one that is common to all. But to make a difference, uh, you may poll, uh, you may volunteer your time, uh, you may take up a specific issue but right now, I want to challenge you because if in our country there is a way to make a difference, it is investing in our children. To have the opportunity to invest your life in a child, nursery, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, you can you can give them not only a piece of the heart of Jesus, but a piece of your heart. And the difference that's going to be made in this country is going to be generational. And it's going to be connected, as far as I'm concerned, to a person's commitment to Jesus Christ. We need people to invest in our children here at Grace. We have classes that will not be offered next Sunday unless some of you step up and say, I'm going to sacrifice some of my time to make a tangible, qualitative difference. We are sponsoring, uh, I don't know if that's the right word, but, but we are definitely, I think that's what they call it, but we're invested at Golden Oak, grade school, 
supporting the teachers and, and, and the children. And we can offer a, a weekly Bible club. We've had in the past over 75 children come out for a weekly Bible club. Now, in most cities, in, in most territories of these United States, that's not even something you can offer. I don't know why we have this opportunity and have had it. But right now it's in jeopardy because we lack some people. I've even joked about how, and I don't, maybe this wouldn't be anyway, <laughs> not showing up on Sunday so I can volunteer. I plead with you. I know some of you cannot for various reasons. But if you will see Kathleen Punt and Harriet Gray, they're going to be out there in the patio between services. Talk to them. Ask them about the opportunities. Ask them about the flexibility and the, the, off, the hours that are available. We, we would value one Sunday a week or one day for an hour when you could come and be at the at the Golden Oak Bible Club and help the teachers and the leaders tell the children about the Word of God, the good news about Jesus Christ our Savior, the very reason we're here this morning. So let's make a real difference, a real difference, and invest in the lives of some of these precious kids. I know people have invested in me and if you think about it, I think you'll be moved almost to the point of tears when you think about the people who have given up themselves for you and where you are because of a helping hand. Okay, Whew, that was heavy. Let's turn to Acts 16. We're going to look at Acts 16 again. Three Sundays ago, we were in Acts 16 and uh, really kind of gave an overview of the whole chapter. And just to bring you up to pace, I want to read, starting at verse 16. Now, this is the second, call, it's called the second missionary journey of Paul. And he's covered quite a bit of ground. He's revisited the churches that he and Barnabas had uh, really started uh, when he covered a lot of this territory before, and his intent now was to go back and, and encourage them, uh, strengthen them, see how they were doing, and then he was going to push on further, and he did. But as he pushed on, in fact, we're told uh, that the, the Holy Spirit closed or prevented him from moving into certain areas where he wanted to tell people about Jesus Christ. And so uh, it was kind of at that perplexed point in his life that uh, he, ha he was given a vision in the night of a Macedonian man saying, come over and help us. And they immediately acted upon that. They took that as God's direct leading, and indeed it was. And so they made their way to Troas, and then from Troas they took a ship, Samothrace, and on to Philippi, which is the first time that the gospel's really been taken uh, kind of into the heart of uh, uh, Roman, uh, non-Jewish. I mean, they are, 
they are now in Philippi, which is a Roman colony. And uh, a Roman colony, in, in this particular case, uh, but not uncommon, um, has many retired soldiers. I mean, it is, and as a colony, it is a, a piece of Italy. <laughs> it's almost like an embassy for the United States. In other countries, an embassy for the United States is United States soil. And that's the way a colony uh, was. Well, when Paul got there, uh, there's no uh, Jewish synagogue. Um, there are some Jews uh, some God-fearers, some people pursuing God, but he doesn't find them in the city. There isn't a, a church, if you will, or a building, and so he makes his way out to the river because he knows that the Jews are going together at the river because that's where they can uh, perform purity rites. And so, let's look at verse uh, 16. Uh, by the way, it was there that he, Lydia responded to the gospel. She and her household were baptized. Um, and then it is to, the, to that location that Paul is uh, returning on another occasion. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus, excuse me, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the market to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they'd been severely flogged or caned, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. In Acts, we must not lose sight of the central truth that is the basis of the grand message and the entire existence of the book of Acts. And that is, is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And in the book of Acts, powerfully, we are reminded that almost uh, concurrently, or as it were, uh, as the essential uh, following piece of the resurrection, the Holy Spirit 
is poured out upon his people. And the Holy Spirit is the very life of Jesus Christ. Acts 16 doesn't mention the resurrection, not directly. But Paul would not be in Philippi. He wouldn't be on a journey to tell others about Jesus and the resurrection if the resurrection was not central to his life and his purpose. If it hadn't shaped, altered, and changed, and then shaped his life, his purpose. The resurrection of Jesus is the central truth and indeed message of Acts. We don't have to look back through Acts, although every time someone speaks for Jesus Christ, it's centered on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There would be no story to tell. There'd be no cross to lift up in song. At least not this cross without the resurrection. But if we just look ahead, if we just turn the page and look at Acts 17, in verse 18, Paul is now in Athens. He has this opportunity to speak among the intellectual elite of all the things that he might be, uh, you know, a person on such an august occasion and in such a special place, of all the things that a person might be uh, likely to say to the intellectual and the lofty, Paul says, or we're told Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. In verses 22 through 31, he is speaking again in front of uh, the intelligentsia, the philosophers of the day. I mean, this is uh, the elite marketplace of intellectual ideas and thought. And he, he kind of translates the good news into language that is not going to uh, confuse his hearers by being maybe too gilded with a lot of Jewish uh, uh, history and tradition. And so he begins with the creation and he talks about the Creator, this gracious, generous God who gives us all of creation and all of its beauty and its abundance and its life. And he goes on to tell us that he did that. We as his offspring, the recipients of this abundance, he did that that we might seek him. But Paul says that God has been patient until now. He's, uh, he's been patient with the ignorance and the apathy and the disinterest of his offspring, his creation, until now. Because now, he says in verse 31, now, he says, we must turn from and turn to God who has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone 
by raising him from the dead. The central point in history. Books have been written about the resurrection as, as it were, the middle of history because everything turns on the resurrection. You see, Acts tells the story of the first Jesus people. And they're Jesus people because they're filled with the Spirit and they're filled with the Spirit because of the resurrection and they have a message to tell because Jesus has been raised from the dead. There would be no story and we wouldn't be here today if Jesus was not raised from the dead. We are descendants. We're descendants of Paul and Barnabas, and Timothy, and Peter, Philip. And all these that we have read about in the writing of Acts. We are generational Jesus people. And the story of Acts is not just history. It is our story. That's what we declare in baptism. It's interesting that in this chapter, although we just... But there are two baptisms. Lydia's and the jailer's. Baptism is not just a rite. It's a telling of the story. It's an identification with the story. It's when we say, I have not just died, I have been raised to newness of life because of Jesus Christ. I identify fully. I'm immersed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It defines who I am now. This is a turning point in my life. From this point forward, I am a new person in Jesus Christ. Baptism is the story of the resurrection. If it weren't central, I mean, when Paul in Ephesians 4 talks about the, the, the things that he, you know, one Lord, one faith, one spirit, one baptism, one God who is over all. This is not a piece of trivia or an arcane piece of history. This is our life. The resurrection and resurrection life of Jesus changes everything. And it changed Saul. Whom we call Paul. And we saw three Sundays ago when we were in Acts 16 that success for Paul was redefined. And we talked about that when we looked at Acts 16. We looked at this chapter, and we kind of went on the road with Paul. We traveled with him, and like him, he was stifled. And, and you know, and, and I think in my simple way, wow, if Jesus is raised from the dead, and of course, part of that message is he's Lord now. He's, he's not just some provincial, territorial, regional, tribal Lord. He's Lord of all. And here is his man, Paul, on this second missionary journey. It was Jesus who said, you know, when the Spirit, when the power comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. 
here, there, to the utter ends of the earth. And now Paul's doing that, and he just keeps blooding his nose as he runs into this problem and that problem, and then he gets this vision. And so he immediately sets out for Philippi, and when he gets to Philippi, he finds a handful of God-fearers out by the river. And this household of this prominent woman, Lydia, responds and is baptized in her household. And Paul returning there again, probably the next Sabbath, this uh, young girl, this spirit-controlled, enslaved, not only by this spirit, but the spirit that controlled her own owners, they're profiting off of her. And it... The message is, is true. They are telling the way of salvation, but she herself is in bondage. She herself does not know this message. And Paul says, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And she's liberated. And then, you know, breaks loose. Her handlers are deprived of their profit. And, and when you look at what's happening, there are these spiritual victories, but in terms of his own life, this is, this, is a, this is a trudge. This is not easy. This is hard stuff. These guys grab them and drag them. They bodily humiliate them, dragging them to the marketplace. They're scandalized. They're called Jews, as though that's shorthand for inferior, people who don't count, people that we don't have to treat like Roman citizens or people with rights, that somehow they're subhuman. That's the way Paul's treated. And they beat them with canes. This is not my idea of success. Now, wait a minute. Think about it. This stuff creeps into our being all the time. I mean, if you watch any television or read contemporary magazines, the whole premise is thriving financially and thriving in terms of material wealth and advantage and being someone special. As a pastor, we want our churches full of people. We want the right people, right? We want the beautiful people. We all want a new car. We all want, you know, enough money to go on vacation, do all this stuff. That's success. But Paul is being caned and thrown in prison with Silas, and shackled, and in this hole, in the dark, he and Silas are praying and singing. And the other prisoners are listening. There's life not just living, but life. 
And as a, Jim, would you put that slide up for me? As I shared three Sundays ago, Jesus' people define success as the relentless per- pursuit of showing Jesus to others. You show Jesus because the Spirit, His life, this resurrection life is prominent in us. Yes, you have to believe the resurrection. Yes, you have to believe it's real. Yes, you have to take it to heart. You have to accept the things that because of the resurrection, God has poured out and bestowed and is yours in Jesus Christ through faith when you accept that and take it to heart. And you believe it against all odds. And when you do on a daily basis, you grow in your faith and your strength. You become stronger and stronger and stronger. And then when the opposition comes and the suffering comes, you're relentless. We may wobble but we stand in our faith. And last three Sundays ago, we talked about the fact that even in opportunity, when there was an earthquake, and everything just was a shamble, and as a result, the shackles were broken, and they had the opportunity to escape. Even the, the, the prison uh, keeper who had put them there thought that they had escaped and he was going to take his life because he is responsible. The penalty of their escape becomes his penalty. That they would be put to death for escaping, and so now he must be put to death, and he is going to take his own life. And even when Paul is given opportunity, again, what's your definition of success? All right, I could understand Paul saying, all right, God, you've given me this chance to escape. This is it. But no, this different orientation to life, the different way he sees life, the different values of life, because with this opportunity, he can reach out and touch this jailer, this man who had, was a part of, his, of the brutal suffering that he experienced. And she says, stay your hand, we're all here. And of course, it led to something that Paul had no guarantee. It led to that man receiving Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior and being baptized. So they stop at nothing. Paul stops at nothing. And we, really, our Christian growth is a part of stopping at nothing. Not opposition, not suffering, and not even opportunity to escape. And Jim will put those points up for us. But here's what I want to focus on this morning, because I've just wrestled with this. I've got about five different sermons that are unfinished out of Acts 16, and this is the one here that You know, I looked at this and I thought, we could draw on some parallels from Acts 16. We could go through it and we could say, you know, we should be on a journey. Have you been on a mission? We're the descendants. We're the Jesus people. 
we send out missionaries, but maybe we need to be missionaries, more deliberate, more devoted, showing Jesus Christ, showing Jesus Christ through opposition, in the face of opposition, through our attitude, and in the face of suffering, through our attitude, through our disposition, that we're not crushed and defeated, that we don't turn and go home. I mean, really, how many of us would say in that hole, that's it? Where are you, God? You haven't come through for me. I've been praying. I was praying in the marketplace. And I'm here. You're not in control. Or my life isn't on track. Or somehow I'm outside of your will. That's it. I'm going home. If I get out of here. Maybe I'm just speaking for myself. I see that as a real human temptation because I can see it in principle in the little things in my life. Where little things, little, little, little things sometimes just take me out of my game. You know? But I'm not going to talk about all those parallels. I want to talk about one parallel. You see, we could see Acts 16 teaching us as about going on a journey and telling people about Jesus in a foreign land, go to a Philippi or a Thessalonica. But what about the journey we're on right now? Each of us is already on a journey in which we need to tell others about Jesus Christ and do it in a way that shows Jesus. Our opposition is different. I've not, I've not been faced with a, 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 a girl possessed by a spirit, at least that I knew of, hounding me. Sometimes we do face spiritual warfare. We're reminded in Ephesians 6.12 that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. That's a spiritual reality that comes with the resurrection. But sometimes, just like Paul he faced opposition because love of money and greed creates challenges for us. I shared three weeks ago about a brother in Christ who lost his business because greed was driving him to either get out of the business or start playing the game the way the greedy and the money hungry were to survive and to stay afloat in his business. Living for Christ calls us to make decisions that are not insignificant. Just because the world says it's cool or it's okay or everybody's doing it doesn't mean that it is the best course of action for us if we're following Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's greed itself that gets a hold of us and takes us out of our game. Or bigotry, and prejudice, and partiality, which was shown to Paul. It was just like, they're Jews! Need I say any more?
Are we routinely sidetracked from living the life of Jesus because when wronged or stifled by any hardship, we fail to see the divine purpose and opportunity in it? Or worse, do we just sometimes chalk it up as dumb luck? Or maybe that God's angry at me. When we realize from Acts 16 and so many other places in the Scripture that it's through these very things that we can show Jesus Christ Lord of our lives, the resurrection life in us. Our suffering is different. We're not beaten unjustly, thrown in prison. But how do we handle insults? Even the insult of a preoccupied person who fails to put something in the right words. Or somebody driving. That's, that's where... Yeah, that's, that, that's something I've got to work on. Do we turn away with a huff and retaliate with gossip and evil thoughts? I'd rather pray and sing like Paul. I want to bless and not curse. I want to love my friend turned enemy or my enemy that I should make a friend for Christ's sake. And I know you do too. And this is a reminder. And our opportunities are different. Let me just bring this to a head with some things that have been... I've been reading a lot of uh, Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor, her... Her birth name was Mary, but her, she goes by Flannery. That's what all her friends called her. So that's her pen name, Flannery O'Connor. It's her real name, but she just doesn't use Mary. She's a celebrated American writer. She was born in 1925. Her, I was really moved. Her father died of lupus at, uh, at a very young age. She was only 15. And then at 25, 25, she herself was diagnosed with lupus. She was only expected to live another five years, but she lived uh, almost another 14. She lived to the age of 39. But in that time, she poured forth a wealth of written work and hundreds and hundreds of letters even though she was on crutches and confined pretty much to the life of her her house and mostly her room she loved Jesus Christ no doubt about it lupus uh, as I said confined her she needed crutches to get around but she never complained in her hundreds of letters Never a complaint. And her letters have been the subject of much interest and even books. Well, one of which I'm reading now, <clears throat> The Abbess of Andalusia, which was the place name of her home. But she suffered headaches, rashes, extreme fatigue, swollen and painful joints, sensitivity to light, hair loss, the ulcers in, mouth, in her mouth. She would never marry or have children. She was inspired by many people of the faith, but she was inspired by the story of Marie-Francois Therese Martin. She was, 
She was born in 1873 in France, and she entered the convent of, at age 15 and died nine years later um, from tuberculosis. Marie's life sounds quite unremarkable, but her autobiography, Story of a Soul, inspired Flannery. The story of a soul is uh, Marie's writing about her revolutionary path of following Jesus Christ, which she called the little way. As a sickly nun living behind convent walls, Marie realized that she was incapable of doing great things for Jesus Christ, like going to Philippi or Thessalonica, or being beaten for standing up for Jesus Christ, or thrown into a prison and praying and singing, or leading a jailer to Jesus Christ. And I, this is the point of contact for us, and for me, and for Flannery O'Connor, and for Marie, The little way was inspired by Matthew 18, 1 through 3, where Jesus tells his disciples, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And for Marie, the way of spiritual childhood meant making moment-to-moment sacrifices of trust in and love for Jesus Christ. You don't do that unless you believe in the resurrection unless you believe that Jesus is Lord, unless you believe that he is alive, unless you believe that his life is your life and that you can access it for any situation and any time because Jesus is real to you. And for little Marie, that uh, deceptively simple title, The Little Way, involved huge effort because it required surrendering herself to Jesus and placing her trust in him completely, even in a convent. It also demands great sacrifices. One example of a down-to-earth sacrifice that Marie made over and over involved another nun in the convent whose personality clashed sharply with her own. Marie found everything about this nun disagreeable, but she swallowed dislike and faithfully followed the little way by treating this woman with love and remarkably by allowing Jesus to live through her. Marie overcame her natural dislike of the nun and the little way worked so well that the woman came to believe that she, Marie, of all the nuns, Um, liked her the most. Flannery resigned herself to her situation as well. And her version of the little way meant sacrifices large and small from the confines of her room where she worked tirelessly on her stories and letters. She discipled people through her letters. She cared for people through her letters. She wrote hundreds of letters. She entertained people. In The Misfit, a story written by O'Connor, The Misfit says, Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead, and he shouldn't have done it. He thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can. 
That's a choice we make every day. I just wrestled this week thinking, how do we really gain inspiration from Acts 16 and what Paul through it went through? And it, it, it always comes back to, to getting closer to Jesus Christ. And I think the little way just boils it all down. We might be somewhere between Philippi and the little way. But the point is, is that whether it's Paul or a Marie or a Flannery or me or you, the Christian life becomes powerful at home with a stubborn husband or a difficult wife or a child who's rebellious or a co-worker who is insensitive or a boss who takes credit for your work or a government that doesn't respond to your deepest desires or represent your interests, we still can make a difference right where we at. That's our journey. Will you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us. This morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ and you'd like to talk with me or one of our pastoral staff or elders, uh, after I close in prayer, we're going to play some music and people are going to start to make their way. And, but you could come forward and talk to us. This morning, if there's a, something on your heart, um, maybe you've been brutalized in some way, like Paul was, maybe has treated you unkindly. Maybe you're frustrated or at your wit's end or you're concerned for another person or the present election is all got you in a tither. Come. Let's pray together. Let's talk to the Lord. Let's start there. However the Lord is leading you, we invite you to come. And you who are strong in your faith and have no prayer request, this is a time for you to be praying for others around you, to be praying for what the Lord is doing in the hearts of those here this morning. This is a moment, just like Acts records a moment, in which God is at work. His grace is parent. He is not far. He is near. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, for that little child that's crying so hard, we just love those babies. They're precious to you. If, Father, we could understand your love is that great as a mother for her child and greater still. Father, touch our hearts today. Help us to realize that right where we are at, you are not far, you are near. And today, in this moment, we can draw near to you. The little way is ours to follow because you are such a big God. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said,